The scream started again today, a slow, silent scream of frustrated anger. Today I wailed at the wall of officialdom. Thy banks, O Barrow, sure must be the muse's choicest haunt. Else why so pleasing thus to me? Else why my soul enchant? All too often, if you look at anthologies of Irish poetry from the 18th century, the 19th century, and right into the 20th century, you could be forgiven for coming to the conclusion that few, if any, women were writing poetry. Bell bugling brute, you threaten my identity. You flank my entrance and put out my light. But if you look more closely, you can find lost manuscripts and books and names that have been overlooked. What has brought thee, O speck of fire, speaking of love and the heart's desire to a land so dead? Their circumstances and what they wrote about are wide and buried. How I am held within a tranquil shell, as if I too were close within a womb. The night the black news reached us across the sea from France, I was beyond a daughterless leading in the dance. Pots are muttering on the lowest heat in the kitchen. A scuffle surely now ensues. His dame will not her privilege lose. They often wrote in spite of lack of recognition, lack of support, and not least the eternal obstacle of daily life getting in the way. For spite of all sublimer wishes, I needs must sometimes wash the dishes. In this episode of Sublimer Wishes, we hear the stories and the poetry of three women whose work has been rediscovered. Olivia Elder, born in Northern Ireland in 1735. Kathleen O'Neill, who describes the lives of working-class women in 20th-century Dublin. And we hear rare recordings of the voice of Donegal-born Maj Heron. I'm in Achadui in Northern Ireland, which you'll find just off the road which heads south from Coleraine in the direction of Cookstown. And despite the fact that it's a miserable, wet evening, there's an enthusiastic football training session going on and the rain doesn't seem to be bothering any of the young players. Just beside us is the Achadui Presbyterian Church. It was built in the 1830s. But a hundred years before that, there was a previous Presbyterian Church just down the road from here. And in 1735, when the Reverend John Elder was minister here, his daughter Olivia was born. Olivia Elder was a poet. And it was only by chance that UCD Emeritus Professor of English, Andrew Carpenter, discovered her work. I was in the manuscripts room in the National Library and waiting for a book. And they have, uh, they still have it in Bradley, a card catalogue. So I thought in a minute or two I'd look up on the poetry and see what there was. And sure enough, there was a card for Olivia Elder with poems from Ulster from the 1780s. And I thought, I've never heard of Olivia Elder. Nobody ever has. Let's send for it. So I sent for the manuscript. And the manuscript turned out to be a really fascinating. It's a, it's a bound book, 18th century binding, a quarto-sized book, into which Olivia Elder was writing her poems. 
And although she was never, she was, only one of her poems was published, in the back of her mind, she had decided from about the age of 20 or 25 that she was going to be what she called a poetess. From official records of the time, we know something of Olivia Elder's father. We know about him because he got into trouble several times. He was a new light Presbyterian, so he was a reformer. And so every now and then he hits the headlines in Presbyterian documentation when he comes up against the Conservatives. So we know about him. As with so many women's lives of this period, there's little or nothing in official records about Olivia Elder. But what we do have is her own writing. We only know about Olivia from her poems. And what we do know is that she was, she was his housekeeper, she looked after her father, um, she never married, and she never had any strong relationships except with women from around the area with whom she exchanged poems. These poems were in the form of verse letters, and from them we find out about Olivia's relationships, her political views, and her day-to-day -day life. Her father, because he was Presbyterian minister, was quite poor, so they had a farm. And so what Olivia did most of her life is she worked on and around the farm as well as looking after her father. And there are clearly many things that she did which no other poet that we're aware of wrote about in the 18th century at all. And one poem in particular gives us an insight. As with so many of her poems, it's written in the form of a verse letter. To Mrs. A.C. Itch, an account of the author's manner of spending her time, written October 20th, 1769. It's lively, and the great thing is that she uses rhyme with tremendous energy, and she talks about her life, and she says, When far from you, dear Anna placed, think not my life I idly waste. When far from you, dear Anna placed, think not my life I idly waste. But when I tell you how it's past, You'll say it is an odd contrast, and that I strangely spend my time between the mean and the sublime. Olivia describes her ongoing struggle to find time to write, or to spend time reading authors like Jonathan Swift, or Alexander Pope, or John Gay, or Edward Young, when there are so many household duties and farm chores. I oft forsake both Pope and Swift, the house tea sweep, and Potsdam left, with princely Queensbury leave his gay to call the folks from making hay, or young upon the morning star to help the boy down with a car. Quit tragic queens in all their clutter and help to churn or dress the butter. Oft from my hand the pen I whisk out, and in its place take up the dish clout, for spite of all sublimer wishes. I needs must sometimes wash the dishes. And her duties don't end there. Unfinished I must leave a fable to go and scour the kitchen table. Or from the writing of a poem descend my neighbour's turf to throw him. For trust me, I'm not quite unskilled in a good turf stack the art of building. The poem goes on to list among many other tasks. Cleaning shoes, mending a whalebone bodice, Brewing, baking, killing a goose, spinning, whitewashing a wall, and even... You with my skill would never quarrel in tightening hoops upon a barrel. And Olivia Elder ends the lengthy account of how she spends her time like this. 
And now, of all this strange account, what think you is the just amount? Why, sure, a nymph of such a claw preceding ages never saw, and poets in all after times will sing her fame and deathless rhymes. Historians tell adorned what reign is by such a universal genius. But hold, in vanity's despite, I'll set myself in proper light. For though each syllable is true, I'll frankly own, my dear, to you, what all my works themselves have shown. I'm jack of all trades, good at none. This poem is an extraordinary example of poetry by a working woman from 18th century rural Ireland. Well, she's actually unique. She's the only poet, a woman poet in Ireland, writing of everyday life. There are women poets in Ireland, but they're usually middle class or at least in the cities, people like Mary Barber, Constantia Grierson, nobody from the country except Olivia Elder. Olivia only ever had one poem printed that we know of. It was printed in the Freeman's Journal, the nationalist journal uh, that was beginning in Dublin in the middle of the 18th century. And we have no idea why she sent the poem to the Freeman's Journal. All I do know is that the Freeman's Journal printed it in small type at the bottom of the back page, and it's all scrunched up there. And I don't know what they thought they were doing, because it is a ferocious, satiric attack on the Church of Ireland rector of Coleraine, whom she calls the Coleraine Magpie. In ancient times, when birds and beasts were made physicians, lawyers, priests, a magpie just released from college, pert, vain, puffed up with little knowledge, came hopping down, both spruce and neat, a parson at all points complete. Could read the prayers for morn and night, as any tutored magpie might, and follow each dull beaten track, wore surplus white and gown of black, and sure no more, unless the band by parson we can understand. And she accuses this poor man, well, when I say poor man, how do I know whether he's poor or not, but she accuses him of hypocrisy and dishonesty and greediness and sexual misconduct and every kind of activity that a clergyman shouldn't be engaged in, she says he was engaged in. Accomplished thus, his chiefest trade is to pay attendance to the ladies to chatter, frisk, and hop about at each assembly drum and rout, and where he meets a cooing dove to make an offer of his love, with many a nameless subtile art, first win, then fling away her heart. And then she has a footnote in the manuscript, which she put in afterwards, saying the following letter and poem were printed in the Freeman's Journal, met with universal approbation and applause from every impartial reader. But, of course, the rector's relatives were very angry indeed and tried to do something about it, but it was too late. It was printed. From other poems, we learn more about Olivia's severe judgment of others and her misfortune when it came to finding a life partner, although those two issues may not be unrelated. At one stage, she writes a long poem called Candor and Charity, where she very candidly talks about trying to have relationships. 
We know from the opening lines that it's not going to end well. Once, oh how cruelly, deceived in love, no second passion e'er my heart shall prove. Though heaven the worthiest object should supply, the dear adventure nevermore I try. To heal the wound did skill divine require, and like an infant burned, henceforth I shun the fire. She starts by having a relationship with a nymph, a girl, who's younger than she is. Uh, it doesn't work out. And then there's another nymph, and that doesn't work out. A third fair form my confidence possessed, and shared the inmost secrets of my breast. Her prudent conduct, candid-seeming mind, to gentleness and charity inclined. Her sense, her breeding, condescending ways had given her universally to please. But how can I make out the painful tale and all her hidden artfulness reveal? What mean dissimulation, avarice, spleen and envy lurking in her soul were seen? And then she says, I think I'm going to try the other sex now. And so she tries a young man. That doesn't work out. He loved another, and by her was loved. And I, with sacred truth, could now declare, wedlock I wished with none on earth to share. And perhaps this line is Olivia's final verdict on potential partners. Still disappointed, grieved and shocked at last. All, all are liars sure, I said and hissed. Although Olivia Elder had a very low opinion of men, and there's some reason to think that she was right, she had a very high opinion of her father. In fact, her father was the only man whom she praises at all. Olivia Elder's father died in 1779 at the age of 86. And the following year, on her own 45th birthday, Olivia remembered him. And she wrote a poem on her birthday after she had lost her father. And in that poem, she really makes him out to be an absolutely ideal father, an ideal man, I suppose, one should say. And the poem also reminds us of how precarious life was for a woman of the time with no husband or father. So she had lost the only real support in her life. Unlike her satirical poems, this one has a softer tone. On the author's birthday, January 21st, 1780, having lost her father. Now from my poor defenceless head, my latest best protector torn, and all its thorns around me spread, left to the wide world, all forlorn, a hapless orphan on my throne, whose kindred blood and tender age have made my aching heart their own and all its anxious cares engage. To soothe my woes, no sister dear, on whom my bosom can rely and where the blackest danger near, no guardian arm to shield me nigh. No safe asylum where to hide amid a hostile world's alarms. No friendly counsel me to guide, to save me from the villain's harms. I find my natal day return, 
my heart beset with nameless fears. But why, my heart, why dost thou mourn, and wherefore thus indulge thy tears? Till far beyond life's middle stage, heaven spared thy parent to thy prayers. He saw thee through its slippery age, and flowery paths were vice and snares. If no fraternal love to soothe, no guardian arm whose shield to claim, thou hast no tyrant's brow to smooth, no haughty lord thy steps to blame. And still, eternal love is near, his humble suppliant to defend. Then what, my soul, hast thou to fear that canst on his right hand depend? Olivia Elder herself died later that same year. No grave has been found, so we don't know if there ever was a gravestone with the epitaph which she had written for herself. Here lies Olivia Elder's mortal play, who life endured in hopes of heaven's great day. Her friends already all her bosom know, to others what she was that day will show. us forward two centuries and from rural Northern Ireland to working-class Dublin. Kathleen O'Neill is a feminist activist, educator, community worker and poet. This is researcher Emma Penny who has written about Kathleen O'Neill in Irish Women Poets Rediscovered, published by Cork University Press. She's from, originally from Ballyfermot but she was part of a kind of big process of moving people into Kilbarrick and specifically into the new council development of Kilmount in Kilbarrick in the late 70s. So there were people from the slum clearance in town, there was people from Ballyfermot, from Carborough, Finglas, all moved um, to Kilbarrick or to specifically to Kilmount, which was the council estate in Kilbarrick. Kathleen O'Neill's poetry was written against the background of what was happening in community and adult education groups at the time. She started writing poetry in the early 80s in the context of um, a writing group that started in the area in Kilmount. So that was the beginning of CLEAR, which is still around today, which is Kilbarrick Local Education for Adult Renewal. And it was really these women who got together to share stories about their lives. So you have to remember for these women, it was really at the intersection of unemployment, poverty, and the women's movement. 
So as part of, you know, mass unemployment at the time, the government started funding a lot of writing groups and educational initiatives and women who were, you know, politicised in relation to and in line with second wave feminism, but also starting to create a kind of class consciousness, were taken advantage of being able to avail of these kind of funding schemes to start to reflect and write and, and politicise and build, build class consciousness in the area. Kathleen O'Neill's poems describe a very different place from Olivia Elder's rural world of churning butter and building stacks of turf. So Off the Wall is set in a welfare office and it kind of details the kind of internalised pain of what it is like to be in a situation where you're not actually allowed to speak or you're not actually allowed to express yourself because you have to kind of remain very docile and tell a very nice story in order to be able to receive your payment. So the poem begins in the singular voice, but it moves towards the collective. So at the end, we have a keening for the us. This is poetry with a social conscience, poetry of solidarity. I'm not writing it just for me. I'm writing it for you and you and you and for other women who are going through this and who are experiencing this. And here's Emma Penny reading Kathleen O'Neill's poem, Off the Wall. Off the Wall. The scream started again today, a slow, silent scream of frustrated anger. Today I wailed at the wall of officialdom. Robbed of independence, dignity in danger, I stood deadlocked, mindlocked, helpless in his sightless, one-dimensional world. I walked away. My mind screamed a long, sad keen for the us and damned their social welfare. What was happening in Kilbarrick proved to be a trailblazer, its influence and example rippling out around the country. Kathleen O'Neill and, and Claire were, were ver- and the Kilbarrick Women's Writing Group were very influential around Dublin. They would go around and they would read their work in other, in other writing groups around Dublin and around Ireland. And even the founder of the Cork Women's Poetry Circle, Moira Bradshaw, who published a lot in the 80s, said that she remembered seeing Claire and seeing Kathleen O'Neill reading and how that really was such an inspiration for so many women who were trying to get off the ground with what was called community writing at the time, which was really not respected and not seen as legitimate in wider kind of mainstream literary culture. So Kathleen kept working in this kind of area, but you have to understand it was a real kind of balance between, yes, I'm interested in poetry and yes, I'm interested in in the arts, but I'm also an activist and I'm also interested in kind of anti-poverty action and so socialist politics and she went on to develop um, a creative writing program in Sale in the in Amiens Street in the north inner city which is still active today. Often the writing being produced was undervalued. Because of the context of unemployment where a lot of these books were published after schemes that were really just intended to increase skills for the labour market and for menial labour jobs, the work wasn't really valued as a literary object. So we actually have a massive archive, much larger than just the books collected from Clear, that is still out there to be found. Today, efforts are underway to ensure that this archive and this writing and these experiences are not lost. Luckily, myself and my um, colleague and the poet, working class woman poet Sophie Meehan have recently received €20,000 in funding from the Arts Council to collect this writing from the Dublin area. We're going to start in Dublin and and work our way out to, to places like Limerick and Galway and Cork and trying to collect 
this writing that was written in working class communities as part of what could be called a community publishing boom in the 1980s. And in that archive are the poems of Kathleen O'Neill and the publications that she was central to getting published. One book in particular published in 1992 called Telling It Like It Is is a social portrait of the area. So it's full of testimonies about what it was like to, to be a woman living in Kilbarrick in the 1980s in kind of a high, high unemployment area. Kathleen O'Neill's poem, Poverty Is, is included in this text alongside descriptions of the local area and, and social life in the area. The poem, Poverty Is, as the name suggests, is heartfelt, hard-hitting, visceral. So I think this poem we see, like, applying colours to pain as well. It's like really shows it's kind of emotional and effective and intense. So poetry really offers this ability to communicate some of those much more intense emotions that, that maybe traditional oral forms of storytelling might not have been able to communicate so powerfully. Poverty is. Poverty is coloured red, red searing brain pain, tortured mind cries stop. Agonised thought seeks shelter, help wanted, apply chaos within. Anything sought to numb the cells. Life hurts, love tears out my being as responsibility looms and dooms me to continue. The network of pain that serves as my brain is working on overload. mountain, the blue stacks, and then of course you've got the loch in the centre of the village, So, and it's a gale talk, so it's got everything here except a shop in the village. <laughs> For our next poet, I've come to Fintown in County Donegal. The poet's name is Maj Heron, and I'm speaking with Patricia Heron. Patricia, can you tell us first, what is the relationship between you and Maj Heron? Well, Madge and my father, Con Heron, were brother and sister, so she's my aunt. She was brought up uh, where we're standing now in Glenamohill, which is about a mile east of the village. You said it's a Gaeltach area. Yeah. So Madge was grown up in, in an Irish-speaking family? Absolutely, yeah. She didn't speak English till she went to school. Growing up in countryside that was sometimes harsh, but always beautiful, it's perhaps inevitable that my Heron's poetry reflects a love of nature. All the way through her work and through her life, she has a great love for animals, for cows, dogs. Her poems about birds, there's one about a wren and there's one about a frog. As a nature poet herself, Jane Robinson is particularly drawn to this aspect of Madge Heron's poetry. So out of the nature, or what you would call nature poems, I think Give Me the Lark has a layer of complexity that I find really intriguing. And it's also a very good example of Madge Heron's skill as a poet, I believe, because she at one time is very direct and accessible, and yet I think there are hidden layers of meanings that it takes maybe different readers or different times to unpack. Give me the lark. 
Give me the lark before you cut it up. I wouldn't do a thing like that to get the music out. I'd rather be a scarecrow a thousand years instead, until a time when she is trusting and comes to me herself. Then scarce I'd pull the summer in to hear the singing in her head. You know, on the surface, it seems to me to be a sort of straightforward ecological poem, you know, Give me the lark. Don't cut it up. Don't eat it. Or as the French maybe used to do anyway, take out the tongues and eat larks' tongues, which is so awful. Or don't poison the lark and poison the land and lose the larks. That would be one layer for me of of meaning. And then there's also what is a lark a symbol of? I think that there's a sort of... um, mystic undertone maybe to this poem. And then... Patricia Heron in her biography adds in a note saying that in Celtic mythology, anyone who heard a lark on St. Bridget's Day was rewarded with luck and sunny days to come. In other poems, Madge Heron wrote about politics, mythology, the beauty of Donegal, about her fellow Donegal poet Francis Harvey and about her own family. Patricia Heron again. Her father was Antalarua, the red-haired tailor. There was This whole glen was full of tailors and a lot of them were herons, so they had to differentiate. So he was the red-haired tailor. Uh, his wife was Sally and they had nine children and Madge was the youngest. She lost her father quite early. Yeah, she was five when he died. He wasn't very well liked in the family because he was a, an alcoholic although also a farmer and a tailor, and there would have been money coming into the house, but, you know, he spent it all on drink, and he spent, he sold animals and spent that on drink, and he pledged stuff that was in the house and sold that on drink. So they were really very poor growing up. So the older ones would realise, you know, why that was happening, why they were poor, but Madge being only five... Of course, he had a nice side, you know, she would sit in his knee and he would play games and whatnot. So I suppose she only rem- remembered the nice things, you know. And I think you can hear a certain compassion for him in the poem that she wrote, A Prayer to St. Teresa. Yes. I'm not sure she she really had a religious Catholic belief, but anyway, she, she wrote this poem to St. Teresa asking, like, if she could help him to become sane again, I think, you know. And what's wonderful, of course, is that we have a recording of Madge's own voice of her reading her poem, A Prayer to St. Teresa, from a 1977 documentary on RT Radio. A prayer to St. Teresa on behalf of my father, who was mad. This thing we have, they call mental, in no way restricts us. Socially, we are tremendous. If it is friendship you are after, we will come tumbling up to you. In Donegal, Gaelic is our language. With its humps, its shadows, it is like ourselves. You go up a mountain and down the other side to find out how you are. Theresa Kadeemaratatu, in English, that means, how do you do? Theresa, they said last night you were all love, tossing rose bushes out of the sky. What's that supposed to mean? They said, and I quote, nobody at any time has ever refused anything. I want to know if it's true and if I qualify. 
I have, among other drawbacks, a father bereft of reason. All reserves cancelled out. The clothesline in his head's gone burst. That little line where all his flags hang out to dry is now collapsed. In the house next to us, there the people take to killing one another at odd hours of the night. My father thinks it's some thereafter. He charges into the dark with the hip high and be Jesus, I'll plug one of them. How can you die? You haven't got a gun. Never mind. I'll throw the horse at them. I never try stopping him. I don't do anything to interfere with the way he is constructed. Teresa, take him by camera and you kill the light. My father isn't photogenic. Call to him. Get him the first time round the in-quick splash of a seal. I don't want him coming out with half a face. I don't want him to be seen going around and him looking uneven. I don't want my father full of holes with scores of dead sheep pouring out of him. Put him seated between two mountains and at his ease that to future generations, when looking up, he will be giants. She visited us in Glasgow. Now, we were living in a, a tenement, basically. You know, we were, we were poor as well. And there were six girls and my mother and father living in the two-room and kitchen, as they call it. And um, anyway, Madge landed. And what I recall of her, she had, she was very flamboyant. You know, the, the arms were always going out and she'd be wearing capes rather than coats and that sort of thing. And she had a little dog with her. And um, my eldest sister, she'd been writing to Madge and keeping in touch. And she was so um, excited that Madge had actually visited them and... She said, oh, it's great that you'll be here for my birthday. And at this, Madge took umbrage and thought, she's trying to get a birthday present off me, you know. And she stormed out of the house. And my mother ran after her and tried to assure her that, you know, there was no intention like that at all. The child was just excited. But anyway, she wasn't listening. She was heading home to London. And then my father came on the scene, so he placated her and got her back to the house. So she was a character. Wherever she went, you know, she made her presence felt. Madge Heron became an actor, training at the Abbey School of Acting in Dublin. She moved to London and later gave up acting to concentrate on writing. And in the 60s and 70s, she was well known on the London poetry scene. She was a guest on several occasions on BBC Radio. And Jane Robinson went into the British Library to hear recordings of Madge from the BBC's Poetry Now programme. These recordings are not in a digital, in a completely digital format. So they're accessed through a computer with your headphones on. But you couldn't just pinpoint Madge Heron and listen. So I had to listen through mostly English, uh, youngish, nervous sounding poets and then came to Madge Heron. And she was just so relaxed, so present and her reading of the bull, as it was called in that recording, was just really clear and um, as if she were saying it out to beyond the mountains or to the bull itself. And um, I remembered that Marius Kokodowski wrote um, a little appreciation of Madge Heron a couple of years after she died, which was published in PN Review. And he said, I think it was he who said that her voice was soft as a summer rain. And that's how the reading sounded to me. Madge read the same poem which she now called Paddy Gill's Bull, on an RTE radio documentary made about her by Kevin O'Connor. 
It was broadcast on the 30th of November, 1977. I tell you, he bugles and is akin to birds. He pipes streams from fine thin fluting. Angered, he cracks mountains. Sensational is his arithmetic. Bell bugling brute, you threaten my identity. You flank my entrance and put out my light and would diminish me in outraged bullery. But come a day a cock crows and I'm free, I will come to you. Then will your black tears redeem the earth. And if Noah ever doubted you, let him now listen. For I say you do bugle and are beautiful. Sing then, split me with your bugling. And I will tell him the music comes from you and not his brittle lark. When she died, there was a lot written about her on the internet, like obituaries. There was an obituary in the garden, which was quite a shock to us, like, you know, that she was that well known. And then other people that knew her were writing their comments about her. Some of them were good, but an awful lot of them were kind of focusing on her eccentricities, which they identified as being a bag lady, homeless, pushing a pram with lots of stray dogs in it. It was, it was all quite negative stuff, you know? And I was getting a bit annoyed by this because I wanted to know more about her and her poetry. And so there was a couple of women's festivals up here in Fintown and people knew about her and they were talking about her. And I was saying, well, why don't some of you write a book about her, you know? But nobody ever did. And I said, if this book's going to be written, it has to be me that writes it. So that's what I did. Um, once I got started, it wasn't too bad. How much poetry did you find? How many poems? For the first edition of the book, I think there was 18 or 19, maybe maybe not even that many. But that sold out quite, quite well, quite quickly. And by that time, then, people were sending me more poems. And so... They said, well, put out a second edition. <laughs> I was like, oh, God, do I have to, you know? <laughs> the first edition was bad enough, and I'd, I'd made quite a few mistakes in the genealogy. I mean, people love telling you what mistakes you've made when you write a book, you know? <laughs> but anyway, it was a chance to, to correct things, and I think I had 41 poems at that stage. It's not very many, but it's better than nothing, you know? That doesn't seem like an awful lot. Do you think no. there are more out there? I think there must be, yeah. There must be. Have you a favourite? My favourite two, I think, and my sister's are the same. We like the one, uh, I think it's called After the Burial, when her mother was buried. And the other one, it's about her little dog that died and she's walking through the glen, still talking to him as if he was there. And I think that's very nice as well. With what joy I would greet you had you been still about and I would raise you off the floor, treasure off my heart. I would make for you a coat to keep the winter out. It's raining in the window, the light is growing thin, and I must cross the fields and fetch the cattle in. And barking in the shadows, you will follow me along while I pretend I've lost you 
my darling little one. Patricia Heron published her book, Madge, Portrait of Donegal Actress and Poet Madge Heron, in 2016, accompanied by a CD with recordings of Madge's own readings from the RTE radio documentary. Until Patricia published her biography, there was little of Madge Heron's work available in print. But nothing can compare with Madge Heron's own performance of her poetry. And in 1979, she was invited to perform in Dublin. Jane Robinson again. She came back to Dublin. She was invited back to um, give a poetry reading at the Peacock Theatre. And um, this, very fortunately, L.G. Gillespie reviewed this for the Irish Times because otherwise I think there would be no record of it. And Maybe there are people out there who were there and, and that would be magnificent to hear a first-hand account. Um, but from L.G. Gillespie's description, Madge arrived on stage at the Peacock Theatre looking a wee bit dishevelled with a an orange plastic bag in her hand and she was kind of rummaging around in the bag and the audience, um, there were some titters coming from the audience so it all sounds really uncomfortable. She began to stride up and down the stage and to declaim extraordinary breathless images and the audience were soon, you know, totally wrapped up and not tittering anymore. Madge Heron slipped from view in later years, but in 1995, her niece Patricia Heron tracked her down and met her for only the second time. Well, we knew she was in a nursing home in North London and I was over visiting my mother who was living in London at the time. And she said, I would like to go and visit Madge. So we said, okay, that was we being uh, Donald O'Shaughnessy, my husband. And um, when we got to the nursing home, I said to the carers, uh, don't point her out to me because they were all sitting around a table. I said, don't point her out to me. I want to see if I can see a family resemblance. So I looked around and, yeah, there she is. <laughs> um, yeah, she was very small and dainty and contained. Not at all how I remember her. You know, she'd be big and overweight like myself and flamboyant, you know, but she'd lost it all and very quiet, very... Um, restrained. So I went over to her anyway and uh, said who I was and she just ignored me, like she just kept staring ahead, but she was muttering something. And uh, I didn't know what she was muttering, so Donald came over then and she was saying something like, like, um, and he said, she's speaking in Irish and she's saying she doesn't want the drink, she just wants the food. So it turned out it was her birthday, which we didn't know, it was her 80th birthday. And they were having a little celebration for her and they had sherry and fruitcake. And then he said, you see, they had told us that she had Alzheimer's and that she wouldn't respond to us or respond to anything. And so Donald said, well, there's an opening there. She's speaking Irish. So he started to talk to her in Irish. Now, she didn't reply, but it was obvious that she understood him. And then he said, would you like would you like to be buried in Ireland? Because he knew how, how important that was for Irish emigrants. He said, can you nod twice for yes and once for no? So she, she nodded twice for yes. So that was the last time I saw her. It was very emotional. <laughs> yeah. This is um, St. Colum Killa's church in Fintown. 
and we're heading down the pathway towards the graves where Madge is buried. This round tree is actually um, providing a shade for Madge's grave. So in this grave, we have my grandfather, Neil Heron, Antararua, and we have his wife, Sarah, or Sally, and we have my father, Con Heron, and my mother, Alice Heron. So also in this grave is uh, Madge um, from Glenamore Hill in London. She was a filler, a poet. Uh, she was born 1915, died in 2002. So on the other end of the grave, we have another plaque with a poem that Madge wrote for her mother on the day she died. It's called After the Burial. So it's After the Burial, Fintown, Donegal, 1932. Madge was about 15 or 16 at the time. The flowers of Mary stand white on the field and the red cow drinks at the river. Today at four, they buried my mother and took her away from this house forever. The dog sits by the hen house door, his snout raised to heaven. Oh, my head is full of the song of pitying voices. I will go and bring my cow home. In this programme, we've heard about Olivia Elder, who lived in rural Northern Ireland in the 1700s, and two poets from 200 years later, Kathleen O'Neill, a Dublin working-class poet, and Donegal poet, Maj Heron. They are just three of the poets whose lives and poetry are celebrated in Irish Women Poets Rediscovered, published by Cork University Press in 2021. And the rediscoveries continue. For spite of all sublimer wishes, I needs must sometimes wash the dishes. That was the first of three programmes in the series Sublimer Wishes and we'll bring you the second and third in early 2022. Sublimer Wishes is a Rockfinch production for RTE Lyric FM. It was produced and presented by Claire Cunningham with sound supervision by Tin Pot Productions.